as a business, it's tempting to try to get out ahead of some of these movements and try to be a part of what's cool and taking off. But there's a discipline in staying true to who you are. Um, for Titleist, the focus, just inherent in the name itself, Titleist, has always been about you know, the pyramid of influence and more of the world's best and connecting to that competitive mindset. I'm Roberto, professional golfer and aspiring business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. Today's conversation is with Jeremy Stone, VP of Marketing for Titleist. Jeremy currently focuses on Titleist golf balls. However, he's been with the company since 2010 and most recently was director of marketing for the Vokey Wedge Line. Before joining Titleist, Jeremy worked at Apple in product development roles. Dan reports to me that Jeremy also is the proud owner of a silky smooth golf swing and his move from Southern California to frigid New England has not affected his level of play at all. Jeremy, welcome to the Course Record Show. Thanks for having me. You're very kind and, and generous with that description of the swing. Most people's oh. game get worse when they're in the golf business, but it sounds like yours has gotten better, Jeremy. Congratulations on that. Uh, I, I, as I describe it often as a guy who has a golf swing, looks like he's got uh, a full-time job and two young kids. So uh, that's good <laughs> stuff. Jeremy, let's jump right into it. Uh, Titleist wedges carry the Bob Vokey name on them. I think it's really interesting you ran marketing for the Vokey line for a while. Are you selling Bob Vokey? Are you selling Titleist? Are you selling the product? Like, tell me a little bit more about that. You're exactly right. Um, and it was a choice made in the mid nineties with both Scotty and Vokey joining in 95 and 96. And the insight was one that wedges and putters, they're more personal. Whereas other pieces of equipment, metals, irons might be a little more technology innovation driven. Um, so I had the pleasure of working directly with Bob and he kind of set the tone and he's still to this day, the only person I've ever met who still calls them Titleist wedges. The rest of us call them Vokies. Like, Oh, what, what wedges do you play? I play Vokies. Bob always called them Titleist. And so for me, that kind of gave me freedom knowing that he had this humble mindset about the whole endeavor to recognize my job was to build up the Vokey brand. We always looked at it as, hey, if we build up Vokey to be its own unique, durable brand, Titleist is going to in infinitely benefit as well. Uh, and so that was our approach. But I always knew we had to honor the heritage that Bob treated Titleist with such reverence and respect that we were never going to cross lines that he wasn't comfortable with. Take me back. This is before your tenure there. But in 95, 96, had that been done before, like building a brand of wedges or putters or clubs around a personality? Like, I mean, I feel like it was a big decision that has had an incredible run, but it, it really is like a very line in the sand type decision. No question. And there's a pretty unique history there, right? So there are a handful of names of brands connected to people, Hogan, Bobby Jones. I would say the most successful prior to this Vokey Cameron run was Roger Cleveland did, did yeah. an amazing job, but it was something Titleist wanted to be stronger in the space of wedges and putters. We had bullseye on the putting side. We had a handful of Titleist wedges. In fact, the first effort for Titleist wedges 
to personify the space was to design wedges and put player names on the wedges. I don't know if you remember them. You might have very, had some of these. Very clearly. DL3, David DL3. Duvall, there was a Brad Faxon wedge with two drilled out holes in the back. There was a Curtis Strange wedge. I remember and, that what, very clearly. <laughs> but what the team learned um, and the leadership team kind of had this foresight uh, led by CEO Wally Uline you had to have a human stand behind the work and that craftsmanship angle really was the driving force because everyone wants something a little different and everyone delivers the wedge a little different. And it's a little bit less about optimized, right? When I'm hitting a driver, I know the launch and the spin that maximizes distance, but there's no real science to getting it close to the hole. You can hit it high, or you can hit it low with a lot of spin. Both are good, just kind of what works. And so that inspires a high degree of customization and that Bob Vokey and then Scotty Cameron on the putters tapped into. They ground the wedges unique for every player. Um, and just those people were willing to stand behind their work. And that just resonated with tour players. They just appreciated the level of effort Bob was willing to put into it. And it just kind of grew. Another sort of interesting marketing decision that strikes me, and let me know if you would even agree with this. Like I see Titus as a brand that's both, that straddles an interesting line between tradition and innovation. Not many companies can really pull off messaging both of those angles simultaneously. You sort of have to pick one, right? But I see Titus effectively doing both. So one, do you agree with how, is, is, that, is that intended? And two, how do you make it work to sort of balance both those out? Yeah. Um... We, we grapple with that all the time inside the building, right? It's constantly facing decisions on pushing boundaries versus really evaluating and understanding our target audience. Who is that? How's that evolving? How's that evolving over time? Seems today faster than ever. Um, but fundamentally, we have been a brand that when you just look down at a club, you're going to love it. And that's bled through every, and this is more on the club side, right? Kind of a traditional pear-shaped, dark-colored driver, as opposed to more unique shapes, squares, or white colors, or unique custom colors. Um, the same is true for when, when I talked to Bob about wedges, and we have had this influx of high-toe wedges, um, which really has this interesting technology backstory that Bob just said, we're not going that direction. We want a traditional look all the tech that might come with that and performance, we can, we can put under the hood and get just as good or better. But essentially, that can never come at the cost of innovation. Um, I, you know, and I think one of the best examples of that is when the ball business transitioned from professional, a wound construction liquid center golf ball to the Pro V1, which is solid core, the traditional side of the business would have told you, no, no, no. Every tour player plays wound. We don't need to go to something else. Stick with wound. The professional's the best ball on earth. It's the number one played ball. But we knew we had something better. And this, the R&D research engineer said, no, 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 we've got something better. Go prove it. Take it to the best players in the world. Will they accept it? Will they play it? And that's a giant leap of faith. But it's also how I think companies in general that maintain a leadership position stay there is not simply by doing what's worked in the past, but you have to push, you have to try new things, you have to keep going. Um, and you know, the corporate world is littered with places that were leaders at one time that got disrupted and um, upended by 
a stagnancy of innovation that we can't allow. It's why, you know, you look at our public reports, the largest investments, the largest line items are connected to R&D. Disruption in golf is uh, certainly a hot topic these days. Uh, and the, the transition from the professional to Pro V1, I just have to like interject with a story. I was playing AJGA and they gave us one sleeve of Pro V1s at the polo tournament in like 2000. And the first, it's kind of a product story, which you have a product background. You know, the first version of anything is not the final version or the nearly the best. That was the Pro V that you could seam it. And if you hit it on the seam, you could hit a seven iron sometimes like 210 yards. And then it spun like crazy. So of course, all these like 16 year old kids like had never played it, didn't know how it played, but they wanted to be cool. I mean, you could spin a ball like 60 feet back off the green. So it was really like the wild west of the Pro V and it came, I don't even think that one ever got sold. We got them in like a white box. It was a prototype, but fond memories of that. It, it's an amazing story. Um, we just found out that Boston College graduate students do a case study on the evolution of the Pro V1. Just found out this summer. And so I'm actually going to go join them uh, in a couple of weeks, talking about like joining their professor and just doing a Q&A with them. Um, and and Mary Lou, uh, the president of the golf ball division, is going to join because she was there. She was there for this changeover and this giant leap of faith. Um, and the white box still lives. We've got some. Uh, the, the white box is still something that happens to this day and is kind of coming up on us here in the in the fall. Oh yeah, I've gotten plenty of white boxes since then, but it wasn't. Nothing was like that first sleeve. That the ball was. Uh, it was like a a horse that hadn't been broken yet. <laughs> Fair to say that product line worked out just fine um, and ended up being you guys doing a lot of good. And But it, it does segue into the next question too. I mean, you've marketed Boki, you're now marketing Tyler's golf balls. What's similar about the two? What's different about marketing both those things? Yeah, so um, I've been really lucky along the way. My career has afforded me some really neat opportunities. And as a marketer, I like to simplify things. And I say, you want a great product and you want a good story. And that tends to write the marketing itself. I've been fortunate now these last two roles I've had to have the best product and the best story. With Bob, it was Bob. Um, and with Pro V1, it's being a part of the number one ball in golf. Um, the reason I made the transition was there's this really interesting difference between our club business and our ball business. The club business tends to be premium in everything that it does. It's one of those that we are gonna make the best everywhere we compete and price is really secondary. And very often Titleist golf clubs are going to be at the premium end of the, of the price spectrum. Golf balls on the other hand has that space. We do have the Pro V1 and the Pro V1X and those are the premium products often at a price premium, but there's a full vertical portfolio of price points in the golf ball business that doesn't exist on clubs. So I do get the premium piece that was a part of the club's business, but I also get this unique opportunity. And that's what really attracted me to this new opportunity was the unique challenge of now having to live at different price points and really trying to understand different segments of the market. What is that golfer looking for? The idea that you get what you pay for if you're willing and you want the best, great news, we've got that. But as you go to a space where a golfer might have a preference on what they're willing to pay for a dozen golf balls, now you have to start making some choices because you have to start making some different constructions um, to 
achieve those price points and still achieve a performance that you're looking for. So do we go for distance? Do we go for feel? It's really, that's where the fun is, is below Pro V1. Pro V1, I can go to the engineers and say, just make it the best golf ball on earth, uh, go. But with these other golf balls, like a Velocity, it's a totally different endeavor with a totally different North Star. And being able to jump in and out of those different audiences and trying to understand them was what really attracted me about this position. That's really cool. I wouldn't have thought of that, that Titleist really offers one level of club and one price point, but offers multiple at, in the golf ball space. So that's cool. This episode is brought to you by Holderness and Born. H&B just dropped their new fall collection and it's strong. I picked up the Sullivan Pullover. This is a quilted snap button pullover in the softest fabric you've ever felt. It's the perfect piece for fall golf, a kid's soccer game, or a college football tailgate. The second thing I grabbed is one of their new belts. This one's a tan color called Fescue, and it's made of wool. The caramel-colored wool strap coupled with the dark brown leather ends is really unique. This belt works awesome with blue jeans and honestly any color shirt. It's an everyday type of belt. Check out all the new styles at hbgolf.com. Let's talk about the golf landscape. Jeremy, it seems like it's changing. So it's, there's a youth movement. I feel like COVID coupled with social media really drove this youth movement. And I don't say this like, you know, guys versus gals. I, I kind of call it like bro golf is like really popular right now. Right. And uh, so how do you, how do you as a traditional legacy brand continue to try to acquire that next generation of customers, especially a, a different, a really different golf demo that's emerging. You know, you're exactly right. Um, and, and interestingly, I agree with you. There is this interesting bro golf thing happening, but you go, and I think I heard you guys talking about it, that when you go walk the Bobby Jones range, it's a, it's a bunch of women and it's a bunch yeah. of young girls take up the game too. So there's this unbelievable cross section of the world taking up the game for us. It's, honestly about discipline and discipline because it's tempting to go chase new um, as a business. It's tempting to try to get out ahead of some of these movements and try to be a part of what's cool and taking off, but there's a discipline in staying true to who you are um, for Titleist. The focus just inherent in the name itself, Titleist has always been about, you know, the pyramid of influence and more of the world's best and connecting to that competitive mindset. So it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be, you know, Scotty Scheffler, number one player in the world. It could simply be, um, you know, Dan looking to go out and play his best at an upcoming event at Charles River or some player striving to break 90 for the very first time. But it's, there's a little competitive edge there. There's a winning there. And for us, staying connected to that mindset and often it's through the PGA Tour professional or that highest level of competition is a piece of the puzzle that I don't think ever goes out of style. Um, winning has always been cool. Um, Tiger Woods is Tiger Woods because he beat everybody. He also had this amazing charisma. He had all these other amazing things that went for him. But does he achieve the greatness or the, the stature he has in our game if he didn't just beat everyone's brains in for 20 plus years. And I don't think he does, right? Winning at the end of the day is pretty darn cool. And so staying connected to that competitive mindset throughout the game is inherently our way to stay connected to these emerging trends. Um, we will miss out on some stuff because of that. But I think um, it if we play those cards right, it should be the more enduring strategy. At least that's kind of the philosophy we've taken. Winning sells for sure. 
Here's a here's a question that come up came up in one of our past interviews that we'd love to run by you. I mean, there's a you know you talk about enduring strategies. At one point in that pyramid of influence, the winning strategy was winning the ball counts, right? Having as many folks on tour using the ball, the wedge, the clubs, etc. It seems like that's been a strategy that manufacturers have used less so over the years. What if you a do you agree with that, and, and b why why is that so? So I think it's been a space that at times has become a little bit crowded. Uh, there's a shifting strategy here and there. And so where is the, the value of that statement? Is it sustainable? And so it is still paramount to what we do at Titleist with the golf ball. And so fundamentally, when we go out and look to communicate our story, it's about more of the world's best. It's about letting the world know 72% of the PGA Tour players this year played Titleist. And if more of the world's best trust that golf ball for their livelihoods, that must mean it's pretty good. And validating not just the performance, but the quality that shot after shot, it's going to work. You do see it in other categories, but very few have sustained that leadership position over the years. And so I think it ebbs and flows as a strategy and some that might attain it don't pursue it as a messaging strategy, even though it happens to be a truth for their business. And so, you know, we've seen different brands ascend to leadership positions in different categories. Vokey's had a pretty strong hold on the wedge category for now two decades. Interestingly, our irons business has as well, it just doesn't get quite as much attention to the fact that Titleist Irons have been number one for 16, 17, maybe almost 20 years now. Um, and so it fundamentally becomes a, can you make the claim? And then do you choose to? Um, one of the tricky ones, and it's a really interesting marketing concept is, do you go tell the story if you don't think it'll be true in a week, a month, a year? Um, we pursue it on the golf ball side because we remain committed in a belief that next year in five years, we're still going to be the number one ball in golf. That makes sense. I never thought about the stickiness, right? About, you know, being the number one player in the world, it's, you can advertise it, but only a couple guys have kept it long enough to really like make that their brand, right? Absolutely. And so um, the, 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 the case study would write it up as the who versus the how many. And a lot of brands tend to pursue the who. They attach themselves to a small basket of high profile individuals. And this is across all sports, including golf. Um, and you look at, you know, the great brands of golf's history that unfortunately, in some cases, aren't even around anymore. You look at all the brands um, that aligned themselves with Jack Nicholas and put all their eggs in the Jack Nicholas basket. And they're not here anymore. No one's playing McGregor irons anymore, even though they made a great product, right? Switching gears a little bit, last week we found out that Rory and Tiger are launching a simulator golf league. Do you worry about your sales considering it's a lot harder to lose a golf ball in a simulator than it is in real life? Uh, it's, it's devastating. Uh, I, I, you go out, you play PGA National, you go through the bear trap. I usually lose at least two golf balls every time I go through that four-hole stretch and I do it on a sim and I'm fine. Same golf ball. So um uh, so it, all kidding aside, um, more so it's a strategic shift, right? There's more golf being played in, in unique venues than ever before. Um, it's not all that new in different parts of the world. Screen golf in Korea and Japan have been pretty popular for a while. I think 
we might be on on the early stage of some interesting waves in indoor golf. In fact, there's some cool properties in your neck of the woods in Atlanta that do some neat stuff on the indoor space. Um, and so we've looked at a lot of it, right? And we've we've I've learned more about launch monitors in the last year than I ever thought I would managing the golf ball business. Uh, we have this cool product called Radar Capture Technology that really enhances the signal capture of radar-based devices. There's really two devices, right? There's camera-based photometric devices and radar-based. Um, if you think about the two that you see on tour most often, right? You're going to see a track band, the orange box. That's a radar-based device. And you're going to see a Foresight GC Quad. And that is a photo-based, camera-based device. And obviously, they've both dabbled in the other's technology. Um, inherently, the radar capture technology, as its namesake, enhances the signal capture in an indoor environment. That screen golf, that simulator golf, the ball only travels 10, 15 feet. And so the radar device can only pick up so much data in that short window of time, that split second between impact and the net. And if the radar can't capture data over the long haul of flight, it's much trickier than to use an algorithm to kick out accurate data on launch and spin and all these things happening in a split second. So that's where radar capture technology comes in is helps speed up the data capture. So we actually are pretty excited about this indoor venture. Um, we're pretty excited about the space that they're headed down. Um, and we've been dabbling in it for a couple of years now, and I'm kind of fascinated to see where it goes. So that, that RCT, it's like a skin on the golf ball that makes it easier to get picked up by radar. Is that right? Yeah. So if you, if you were in the market and you were doing research around one of these radar-based devices, they might tell you, if, hey, if you're going to use it indoors, put these little stickers, these aluminum stickers on the golf ball and orient the golf ball. It helps with data capture. And okay. two and a half, three years ago, TrackMan came to us and said, hey, uh, we're, we're, we run a very premium business, much like yours. We'd love to find a more elegant solution than aluminum stickers. Can you help us? And our R&D team... They're great at making golf balls, but they're even better at just trying to tackle these weird, complex problems. Um, engineers get excited about that stuff, and, and I just love that about them. And they said, sure, we can help. And so what it inherently became is a specific radar reflective ink is printed on the casing layer of the golf ball in a specific pattern, and then we put the urethane cover over the top of it. And because of the ink... And because of the pattern, you can just roll the golf ball into the hitting area without even having to orient it, hit the golf ball. And over 99% of the time, you're getting accurate spin numbers as opposed to estimated. Wow. That's cool. That's interesting, right? That's, that's an example of a trend that you guys clearly chose to take on and, and get in on early. And it seems to be growing. You can grow with it. So that's uh, back to your point about picking the right battles and having the right discipline. It seems like the one where you where y'all did dabble and, and, and experiment there. Yeah. So I would say, you know, not often do we have this really unique first mover advantage in this space we do. And when I talked about the discipline, the discipline for us is kind of putting it through the filter of the dedicated golfer, that golfer, that mindset of trying to get better every day. And as soon as we kind of started to identify, Hey, look, the dedicated golfer, they just want to get better. And for folks like Dan and I, we're, we're, we're entering a, a fearful stretch here where the golf season's starting to come to a close. What do I do? We're going to go find ways to play some golf. 
but I want to do it in a way that's precise. I want to do it in a way that if I want to work on my game, let's say I want to go work on my, my wedge distance control. Well, boy, if, if I've got the wrong spin rate, that changes my carry number. And now I'm walking out of that practice session with inaccurate data. So this one in particular aligned perfectly with the audience we constantly are focused on, which is the dedicated golfer. And so in this case, this emerging trend just lined up with our general mission. And that was a cool moment that we were able to really lean into. And, and we're still at the infancy of all of this, I think. I mean, you know, the Tiger Rory thing um, is, is just the beginning of where I think this might be going. So we're talking tech. And, and before you jumped into the golf business, you worked at Apple, right? We covered that in your intro. How much of that, what you're talking about now, and this passion for technology and innovation, how much of that comes from Apple? How do those learnings carry over in this job? Yeah, I, I mean, Apple, again, super fortunate, uh, was introduced through a professor in grad school to this opportunity and learned so many interesting enduring lessons. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I, I, I wasted my Apple experience just being my first job out of grad school. It was like, oh, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and it's just such an interesting kind of career progression for me to reflect on. But inherently, I, I really like tech. I'm fascinated by it. I think it's really neat. I've just been a lifelong lover of the game of golf. And so to shift over to titles was logical to me. Others, not so logical. But Apple taught me so much about kind of these ideas of how do you build a brand. And I think where Apple and Titleist are similar is it's a brand built through product. It's product first. If you go out and just try to build a brand, um, what do you stand on? But with Apple, it was always about how do we enrich the lives of consumers in these really unique ways? You know, you look at a, the great Apple commercials. They are about the end user enhancing their life in some way through the product. And the same is true of titles, right? Our job is to help you play your best golf and we can help you do that. And so that's where I would draw the similarities. I think one of the really interesting elements of, of Apple is just, you know, there, there are no limits to what they can go pursue. You know, the speed at which chips get faster and the speed at which that technology improves is really this unbridled component that's really only governed by physics. Um, and what those amazing engineers are able to accomplish, you know, golf's a different game. Golf's, golf has rules and regs, and, and, and that certainly shifts the innovative landscape to a certain degree. I think products like RCT prove there's still a ton of frontiers out there that can really mean a lot to the golfer. Yeah, that's an interesting take on, you know, product versus brand. Uh, we, Dan and I did a series on this show around direct-to-consumer brands, and, uh, yeah, that's, they're probably putting brand first, right? They're kind of saying it's a commoditized product and we're going to, we're going to build a brand around basically our marketing. And I think there's been success stories on both sides of it, but you've definitely fallen on the, uh, on the product first at Apple and then at, uh, at Titleist. And I've enjoyed listening to you both tackle this issue on a couple of your prior discussions around kind of the evolving mindset of the consumer and the desire to be more connected to the values of the brands they associated themselves with. And does it open the door for more brand first concepts? Um, and you see it outside of golf, you see it inside of golf. Um, and it's something that we're kind of keenly aware of. So here's one question. Uh, we talked about innovation and the incredible things your engineers can do. When it taught, when we get to the professional rules versus amateur rules and whether the pros need to roll the golf ball back or not, I, I feel like we put the, 
we put the words in the equipment company's mouths like oh the equipment companies are against it they're I've never really heard that many equipment company people like just say that this is the end of us when we roll the golf ball back. One of my big points is that it's super easy to, you guys are really smart. You could take 20 yards off a golf ball in a couple of days with your engineers, but let's tackle those separately. You know, what is the stance? Like why, how do equipment companies feel about what is most likely coming is some equipment rollback for professionals and then love your take on like, yeah, we can do that. It's going to be fine. Everyone's going to be okay. Where do you fall there? Can't speak for everyone else. Uh, and I bet you there's at least an interesting diversity of opinions amongst the manufacturers, right? Because we all occupy a different space. Um, for us, it's really, let's ask the key questions of, and we believe at, at Titleist, and look, it's a company that was founded in 1932. We've been here for 90 years um, we believe strongly that we're stakeholders in the game and Titleist inherently will do better if the health of the game is growing and strong and vibrant. And so the question we ask first and foremost in this entire debate is um, where is the current harm to the game where it is today? Is there harm? Are there, are there harms being inflicted that we think will dampen the enthusiasm around the game that's the starting point. And right now, under the current rules and regulations, particularly as we focus on the golf ball, um, the game really hasn't been much healthier than right now. And there's a lot of contributing factors, right? There's the COVID effect that this became this amazing outlet for the world. Um, there's this unbelievable youth movement on the PGA Tour that is driving some really cool interest. You've got you know, folks that have burst on the scene, a guy like a Colin Morikawa or a Victor Hovland, kind of now competing with a Justin Thomas and a Jordan Spieth, who oddly enough are now in this mid-tier age category. And then you've got Tiger Woods, who's made this resurgence. And so, boy, we feel like the game's pretty healthy. Rounds of play have never been higher. So the question becomes, is now the time for us to go do something um, and recognize that the purview of the governing bodies that they would talk about is 50, 100 years out? And we get that. Um, and so our stance, as you look at the data would be, you know, when will physics win out? And, and that's kind of the crux of our position on this, which would be, um, we think the physics of the golf ball, um, they've been at a peak for a while now. Um, and, and the, the idea that the golf ball is going to add 20 yards to your game over the next 20 years. Um, uh, we think that physics has spoken. It's the most regulated piece of equipment in your bag. Um, and, and it's other contributing factors that I don't know that we'd want to regulate, like getting in the gym a little bit more, optimizing on a launch monitor, uh, even down to the agronomy of the golf courses that we play. So, um, you know, look, we're into the health of the game. We want to be stakeholders at the table, having a discussion. We think, um, and this gets to your second question, when it narrows in on the golf ball, uh, we'd like to see a little bit more of a holistic approach. Um, we think that there are a number of factors here. And I, I really want to invite you guys to ball plant three here in New Bedford so that you can see it because um, designing one golf ball, you know, I joked with Voke all the time, hey, man, anyone can make one great wedge. Uh, the magic is to scale that, right? And so um, while making a golf ball fly shorter can be done, um, scaling it to make it work um, is tricky. And also scaling it in these, this world of can we make a golf ball that 
penalizes the longest players on tour while allowing Dan and I to still chase distance, um, you know, at the amateur level, that's not a real endeavor. So if we take distance out, it, it's everybody that ends up losing space. Personally, and we don't yeah. need to get in this whole conversation. I just think there's 500 people that need to be playing different equipment, 500 professional golfers on the planet, because golf was designed as a game against a golf course and the golf courses haven't changed. And the ones that they have changed have reached the limit that where they can be changed. So uh, I don't think golf or an amateur has changed at all in 250 years. It's the same game. Every, the average handicap will be an 18 from now until eternity. And no matter what kind of equipment you guys come up with, but at the professional level, it is a, it is a markedly different game and something I think uh, it's probably time to, figure something out but that's my personal opinion well so i'd be curious um if i can ask you a question can i turn the tables on you let's do it um i always think there's something neat about the charm of golf that i mean personally and maybe this is the romantic the traditionalist in me that just says like hey if i go to glen abbey and i stand in that bunker where tiger hit that bunker shot at 218 yards or whatever it was it was a six iron I want to be able to stand there in awe and go, how do you do that? I don't want to sit there and be able to hit that shot just like him because I've got equipment he can't play. I think that's fair. I also think that why do people play golf is the real big question. And I think we overstate the professional golf reason for that. Like if professional golf disappeared tomorrow, you would still go play golf. And you would love chipping that ball in because the game itself is, is just endlessly fascinating. And I just think there's like a 1% connection between professional golf and recreational golf. All right, we're going to mix things up a little bit. Jeremy, you've been really thoughtful in these answers. We're going to put a premium on speed now with a couple of segments. So, uh, so I'll lead one called tap-ins. These are mostly primarily about golf. Best wedge player you saw. Justin Thomas. Funniest player at one of your photo shoots. Henrik Stenson. Your personal favorite course. Turnberry, Scotland. Pro V1 or Pro V1X? Can I go off menu? I play left dash. Okay. All right. Snobby. <laughs> <laughs> I bet the try. It, so gotta, it's, gotta... it's, it's suboptimal launch conditions. I need all the help I can get. I need low spin. Speaking, speaking of spin and getting fit, getting fit for clubs, indoors or outdoors? Outdoors. Playing golf, links or parkland courses? Links. Well, the, the, the Turnberry answer gave it away there, so I, I should have guessed. Those are all for me. Roberto, over to you. All right, Jeremy. My section is called buy or sell. Uh, we'll start with buy or sell, Tesla stock. Buy. Buy or sell, simulator golf. Buy. Buy or sell, the PGA show in Orlando. Buy. Buy or sell, Bitcoin. I'm out of my depth. Sell. <laughs> Buy or sell, Belichick or Brady? Um, oh, do I? am I picking one? Yeah, you have to pick I'm, one. I'm buying both of them. <laughs> All right, we'll take it. Uh, I, go I go Belichick. In, in, Bel in Bill Belichick, I trust. I, I have to. I'm a, I'm a diehard Pats fan. I'm, I'm, it's a homer pick. Okay, I'll allow it. Buy or sell, Apple's expense account or Titleist's expense account? Apple. Although the Titleist one's not terrible, I tell you what. You're, oh, the, the Titleist one's not terrible. I'm going by pure market cap on that one. Yeah, yeah. No, but the, the tour crew uh, uh, for Titleist, they have, uh, they have 
very nice taste and, and the budget to match those guys. If you want to know what the best restaurants are in every tour stop in America, talk to, uh, talk to the Titleist tour crew. They, they do a nice job and uh, also happen to be a string of the nicest humans given the, the taxing that that poor crew takes on their day-to-day life. Yeah. All right, Dan, you want to throw any other questions in there? This has been great, by the way. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's it. I think we're right in the target time, which is great. So I'll wrap by saying, Jeremy, thanks for being on the show. Super great to hear all your insights. It's such a unique view in the business. And you, you've had a sort of had an interesting trajectory in the business that we really appreciate hearing about. So thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you both. Great get, Jeremy Stone, VP of Marketing for Titleist. He had some great insights. Truly iconic golf brand, probably the iconic golf brand. So really cool to, to get some of his time. What were your takeaways? I agree with you on the Titleist and, and their iconic stature. We got into a couple ways, which will unravel today. But let's talk about Jeremy himself a little bit. I found them to be quite fascinating in terms of his ability to clearly digest and articulate some very involved strategic decisions that Titus has to make in the interview with him. I don't know what your, how you felt about that, but it was very interesting to sort of take a peek into his brain and in, in the building as far as how these conversations have gone in a way that I don't think I could have thought of. Well, I think it probably speaks to their clarity of approach and brand positioning that has kept them at the top for so long is probably not a coincidence that he was very articulate about laying that out. It's not a, there's probably not a lot of moving and maneuvering and pivoting and like the brand has been so solid and such a market leader for so long that I'm not shocked that he could clearly lay out the vision for, for what they're trying to do. So I I don't think that was coincidental. I, I hear you're coming from, I think what's, and I'm not shocked either. I wouldn't say that. But having met Jeremy outside of the context of our interview, like our first conversation, he was, we went really deep in terms of things like, how do you calculate marketing ROI and the fundamental assumptions underneath the different methods? Right? Okay. Like that, that was, and you know, we talked about the interaction effects between different marketing channels, the consumer journey. So he could go, he can go pretty deep on certain things. Yeah. And, and my comments less on Titleist, but more on his ability to sort of really stay crisp and high level. Yeah, but also when needed, press and go pretty deep, and that's a um, that's a rare combination, I think, and one that really impresses me as far as his his professionalism approach. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he has great pedigree, right? I mean, he managed products at Apple, and we didn't get too much into that in the interview. But I would love to ask some follow up questions about their process and the things that he learned and then took to to titles. I think we covered it a little bit, but you know, we could have talked for a couple hours. Jeremy, personally. Where do you think he goes from here career-wise, since we're kind of talking about his his personal skill set? Obviously, super, super valuable in the market and to Titleist, but just curious, Apple, Titleist, Vokey Wedges, Titleist Golf Balls, I would say that's a promotion. I mean, that is their marquee product. Um, you know, What do you see from there? I see a general manager type skill set, right? Someone who can step in as president you know, or business line leader, outside of just the marketing department per se, right? Um, I think he's got that holistic approach versus, oh, I grew up in media and I do media, so I'm a marketer type. type. Um, I don't see him being that. Yeah. Um, So I I could see that path very easily for him. 
you know, within Titleist or, you know, who knows beyond, I don't, I'm speculating now, but, but I think he's got that well-roundedness to, to, to go broader in his career. Totally agree. So let's take a step back. You, you said, let's start with Jeremy, but you know, obviously iconic Titleist brand. The name is kind of a mouthful. It's a little bit of a peanut butter in your mouth name. I, I've always struggled like spelling it, saying it, Titleist, but the look, the feel, the font, the lettering of a Titleist golf ball. I don't even think Nike or Polo Ralph Lauren or has that strong of a connection to what golf is and like when you're a kid and you get that first new sleeve of titleist you, you still have that connection to that special that special feeling where does that come from like how did that how did that happen and how do they carry it forward yeah i mean the you're, you're right i mean it permeates through and through down to every creative decision right that it really permeates and they know who they are and it's really it's really consistent but we did we didn't cover some areas where that position is um challenged right and like we where there's some you know where jeremy talked about the temptation to chase new and the restraint that's needed to not do that sometimes yeah and i i found that really interesting and um you know marketing 101 comes down to every brand makes three decisions as far as how to grow and that's either you grow your share of the pie right take more share right Deepen the pie means keep your share, but get more, get the same people to buy more of your product or expand it, or you grow the overall market size. Typically, the market leader in terms of market share chooses to grow the market size. That is that is what is typically thought of as the more the more prudent approach. And Titleist is a leader in certain categories. Um, so we talk about grow the game in a very cliche way, but it really is good business for them to to adopt that. Yeah, I would say if. If I had to speculate on which of the three they're trying to do, I wouldn't say it's grow the overall pie. I think they're an aspirational brand. I think they are the golf brand. I think they're very disciplined on targeting avid, high-income golfers, the top of the market, and owning that section of, of the market. So I guess it would be, you know, in your example, the second one, right? Go deeper. Get even more market share from that demo. And, and I, I think that's their strategy. And it's, we brought it up like bro golf, right? Like, and he basically took a pass on it. He was like, that's not us. I mean, that was kind of his response to that question. He's like, it's great. And, but I think, you know, the 17 year old kid that is picking up golf right now or picked it up through COVID, like when he quote unquote grows up, he will grow up and want to be, they'll want him to be a Titleist customer when he grows up and how he gets there is not really there. You know, they're not trying to be all things to all people. And that's, that's hard. That's a hard battle to fight. And anytime you're trying to grow a business, that makes sense. And you're right. I typically don't see Tyler's manifest in bro golf, but there are a couple of different adjacencies there that Jeremy talked about where Titleist was pursuing something new, right? The two that I picked up on was the Raider capture technology and the golf ball yeah. supporting all the simulator golf growth that, that exists. Yeah. And our discussion around, you know, our clubs are the best of the best, but with the balls, we've, we've created different price points and different constructions to cater to a more, uh, to a less aspirational type uh, player. Yeah. So what do you, how do you sort of see, you know, the difference between turning down bro golf and maybe going deep into like junior sets, et cetera, but also tapping into Raider Capture and brands like the Velocity Golf Ball that are more for uh, a less avid player? Yeah, I think, 
you know, it's probably, we need to take a step back and realize that the pro V one is really the, the top, top of the market, right? It's a lot of the golfers that we play with probably use it, but we, we probably have a little bit of a skewed, skewed reality. I think they're, uh, the, the brands below Pro V1 are probably still two pretty avid golfers, right? Pretty regular. It's probably not your twice a year golfer that's playing the velocity at the $30 or $35 price point. So, you know, it kind of depends how far you zoom in, whether, you know, just to really see which part of the spectrum you're on. Um, and, and you make a great point about the simulator golf, like very much uh, leading with technology there that, that kind of skin underneath the, the cover of the golf ball is really cool. I was, fascinated to learn more about that i was aware of that product but kind of knowing the genesis from i mean when i first started getting on launch monitors is when you had to like paint the the fluorescent dots or the the weird sharpie dots on the golf ball and now that's built into these uh to these new titleist simulator balls so that was that was really cool well, we started right away talking about the presence of bob Voki and scotty cameron as, as brands as well as uh creators in their in their ecosystem I mean, you've met some of these folks, I have not. So you, you got a different take on it. But um, what I couldn't figure out is, is aligning with someone like Voki or Cameron, is that an example of tradition or innovation? I, I think it's creative. I think it's innovative. I mean, to, to build, I mean, the clubs are great, but those wedges are not better than Cleveland's, right? And when you look back to when I was 13, I clearly remember like saving up or, you know, waiting for my birthday to get a new Cleveland 588 wedge. And they were the clear, clear market leader. And, you know, Bob and Jeremy would probably disagree that the Vokies is a better wedge. They're both good. They're both great. A Cleveland and a Vokey. And how did, you know, how did they take that market? Like they built that brand from zero to being, uh, I think, you know, the leader in that, in that product category now. So, I would put that under innovation for sure. It's interesting because Scotty Cameron and Bob Oki themselves, anytime a brand goes with an endorser, right? You're sort of live or, live or die by the endorser, right? Yeah. When they're uh, caught in hot water, that's an issue. So that, that personality, you're really kind of creating sort of a marriage in that sense. But but Bob Oki and Scotty Cameron, they're very, um, you don't know that much about their personal lives. You don't know that much about them outside of their presence within that brand. Yeah. And I also think you could say that it's easy to lump those two together, but they're actually very different, right? I mean, Vokey's on the tour a lot of weeks. A lot of people know him. He's, you know, friendly and personable. And like I said, I've only seen Scotty one time and maybe shook his hand. I've been to the studio. It was years ago and I didn't work with him, but Beyond that, beyond the personalities, they built Scotty Cameron on the kind of like false scarcity platform, right? The like Louis Vuitton, there's only so many of these. And they did not do that with Vokey. And uh, I would say both premium price points, obviously the putters are more, but there's only so many head covers. There's only so many of these putters, the circle T line, the like that, that's a whole different way. That's the Supreme model, right? Louis Vuitton, you know, that's one way to build a brand. And then Vokey was the same in that it had a person attached to it, but different in that it didn't have that scarcity model. So they really have a full repertoire of, uh, you know, marketing techniques and brand positioning, which is really, really impressive. We closed the conversation talking about the distance debate and rolling back the golf ball. You've had some thoughts on this for a while. After hearing Jeremy's take, do you feel any differently about your position? I really don't. I, I thought that, uh, you know, being a traditional brand, I wanted to kind of give him 
the, the stage. Cause I think, like I said, people put words in the equipment company's mouth and I've heard the argument that, you know, there's really tradition in the game and that same three that you make is the same as a pro. And it really, that one hole, you did the same thing as the best in the world. And I understand it. Uh, one thing I hadn't thought of that he said was that, you know, he feels like a lot of the onus for this rollback or fixing the distance is put on the golf ball. And I tend to agree that like, it seems to me to be the easiest way to kind of correct the outsized distances. But his point of like, hey, there's a lot of factors involved. Let's not just go straight to the golf ball as the solution was a fair point. I, I thought that was a, a fair a fair pushback there. What'd you think? No, I agree. Um, I I think that's that was a very rational part of the discussion. I think the you know the very romantic notion that he brought up that I that I thought of a little bit coming off that conversation was you know, don't you want to be the one to hit the same shot as Tiger Woods or when you chip in, you know, be the one say, oh, I hit the best chip that day or whatever the case may be. You know, I don't know if I, like I'm swayed all of a sudden from that, but it was an interesting thing, right? Like it's, it's that is why I play the golf is to have those moments, right? I don't think I know, I think of like, oh, I hit a great shot and Tiger couldn't have, that's, I don't think I'd go there, but, but the notion of attaching to those specific moments and those feelings, et cetera, I think is very uh, what makes golf appealing to many, including myself. Yeah. And I could see the, and, and Tyler's in particular with their right competitive spirit, et cetera, as being the ethos of the brand. I could see how that would be a position that would very generally dictate how they would um, carry on with this stuff, with this topic. Yeah. yeah. I've got some data here that I think will really position how the golf boom has taken off. All right. Let's try to guess. How many how many dollars in golf ball sales did Titleist make in 2021? 2021 golf ball revenue. Um, a billion? Close. Almost 700 million. 667. 667 million. That's a lot of golf balls. And to put that in, in context, that's up 31% from 2020. 31%. In sales, right? We're not talking about shipping iPhones or you know some kind of like techie thing that scales like crazy. Making thirty-one percent and selling thirty-one percent more golf balls year over year in a supply challenged environment. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty impressive. How big is that? Like, is that an end zone full of them? Is it a soccer stadium full of them? Just the size is crazy. I love thinking about it. just so many golf balls. I would guess it's like a football stadium full of them. That's a good uh, consulting, like brain teaser type interview question. Yeah, like it really, really, yeah, really, it is. If you, that's probably a yeah. Some hedge fund is probably asking their analyst interviewers that that question. I love it. All right, Dan. Good, uh, another good conversation on the Course Record Show. Check out our podcast. Subscribe on all the platforms, and uh, we have a new TikTok. So add it to your TikTok at Course Record Show. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. And thanks for Jeremy for the time. Catch you next time. All right.